streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. From the Milton Metz studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host WFIU, WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. The pres presidency of uh, Donald Trump has certainly presented new challenges to journalists. How should reporters react when the president of the United States labels them the enemy of the people or when the president takes liberties with the truth? Do journalists have a responsibility to, to call that out? Uh, we just saw the, the news about CNN's Jim Acosta. Did he do the right thing in going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the president, or did he simply make headlines for himself? We're going to talk about issues like that today on Noon Edition, and we have three guests joining us in the studio is Elaine Monahan, who's professor of practice in journalism and public relations at the Indiana University Bloomington Media School. Bill Mitchell is a journalist and former editor of Pointer.org, and Michael Puente is a reporter for WBEZ in, in Chicago and Chicago Public Media, and he's also a board member for the S Society of Professional Journalists here in Indiana. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us, news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Noon Edition. So I'm just going to, uh, I think I'm going to turn first to Elaine, since she's sitting right in front of me, and just uh, ask, you know, from your, 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 you are a reporter with Reuters, I mean, have you seen anything like what we're going through now in, in the media world? Not in this country, no. <laughs> um, so I, because I worked for Reuters, I, you know, was a journalist in several different countries for, you know, greater or lesser periods of time. Um, the experience I've had in the United States was mostly at the State Department, where I was a reporter for Reuters. And I think it's fair to say that the State Department kind of press uh, media culture is perhaps a little more genteel than it is in the White House and has always been because it's a foreign policy kind of nerd shop. <laughs> Whereas the White House is obviously much more kind of politicised and political. But I certainly can't remember ever seeing anything like the kind of, I suppose, what you could call argument culture that we've seen grow in this White House. Um, certainly not seen anyone being um, kicked out the way that Jim Acosta was and certainly not seen the White House produce a doctored video to try and back up that decision. Mm -hmm. Bill Mitchell is a former editor of of pointer.org and the pointer institute for media studies is is just that it's a it's a place where people think about all these issues involving journalism and the media so uh, bill same very broad question what what you know what what are we going through now you know i remember back covering city hall in detroit about 45 years ago we had some kind of explosive interesting times then but certainly nothing uh, approaching this where a, uh, a public official in Donald Trump uh, repeatedly utters things that are not only arguably true, but demonstrably, uh, arguably untrue, but demonstrably untrue. Uh, and, and that really is a, a quite new landscape, given that it happens usually several times a day. And Michael, Michael Puente. Yes. Uh, so, you know, from your standpoint with the Society of Professional Journalists, I mean, what, what kind of what kind of an organization like that? do to try to, um, you know, push the, the principles of journalism and, you know, what we all, what we've all stood for for all these years? Well, right. Uh, well, right. Of course, uh, SPJ, the Society of Professional Journalists here in Indiana, strongly supports CNN and Jim Acosta and reporters everywhere for the right to a free press. I think our view is here that public officials, whether it be the president, whether it be a governor or a sitting official, uh, you know, they're doing a disservice to democracy and the American people when they prevent journalists from covering press conferences and other events based on whether they like the journalist news or the news outlet or not. I mean, news outlets have an obligation to present the news. And look, public officials aren't always going to like how it's reported. But that doesn't mean, you know, we heard that term fake news. That doesn't mean it's fake news. It may be something that you disagree with, um, but 
what we're seeing here with the president is really over the top and quite frankly it's dangerous and let's and from another perspective as from a journalist perspective the president he sets an example for other elected officials whether that be republican or democrats in how they behave or act towards the press and i you know he he's actually can make it very difficult for other for other reporters whether they're covering the president or not in how they deal with the press and public officials it it seems like the press is playing the role of a, a check on the president i'm just wondering is is that the role of the press because it seems like that should be the role of Congress or another branch of government, not so much the press. Well, I think it's the role of the, the press to hold public officials to account. And uh, in some ways, it's been framed since Trump has been in office as uh, reporters being at war with the White House. I like how Marty Barron, the editor of the Washington Post, has framed it. He, he says, we're not at war with Trump. We are at work. We are holding him to account uh, for his policies and for his statements. So I think the extent to which journalists can stay in the game that, that we know how to play, which is good journalism, as opposed to being at war or, as you say, trying to fill the, the shoes of uh, members of Congress and being a, any kind of constitutional check. Yeah, and I, I think I, I agree with you very much. And I also think that it's sort of it's a good moment to sort of reflect on the reality of being a journalist in one of these White House briefings. You know, you might have like 30 seconds to pose your question. So to frame that as a kind of a, a war of words that's a two-way war between a journalist and the president is clearly not representative of what's really happening there, at least in my mind. Um, I mean, there is another conversation to be had, of course, about uh, the nature of the engagement between journalists and the president in the, in the briefing room and, and the White House uh, spokesperson also in terms of, you know, the extent to which having an argumentative tone can be helpful. And I think we can sort of debate that as journalists. But, um, you know, the reality is that the press and the media have a job to do. It's their job to ask questions. Um, and, and even if it's uncomfortable, they still have to keep doing it. You know, the problem I see here, though, this is Mike in, in Chicago, um, is that the, the pitfall that journalists risked here, though, is that be, that we're starting to become, you know, part of the news. We, we're seeing the issue with Jim Acosta, with the ruling today, and I think that's a very uncomfortable position for journalists to be in. We want to be there. We want to report. We don't want to feel like we're adversarial or, or somehow biased against the subject that we're covering. But in the case of Jim Acosta and CNN, they had no choice but to challenge this. This is probably not the position they would have liked to have been in. But as we see further, we do see examples of the president insulting other members of the press, whether they be women or minorities, people of color, and they they become the news. And that's really a position that reporters, journalists really don't like to put themselves in. That's a point well taken, Mike. I think, Mike. Pointer colleagues, Al Tompkins and, and Kelly McBride, summed it up pretty well in a recent piece. That their suggestion in one sentence was to journalists ask tough questions, avoid making statements or arguing during a press event, and report the news. Don't become the news. I think that's pretty good advice. Yeah, I very much agreed. With, totally agreed with that. You know, and it's always uncomfortable as a journalist to sound like you're um, second guessing your colleagues who are, so to speak, in the front line. You know, they're having to make decisions on their feet. Um, but yeah, I, I feel very strongly that it's not the job of a journalist to get into a fight with anybody. Um, it's our job. We're, we're standing in for the public in that situation, and so it's our job to get the answers to the questions with minimum drama. Well, I would... the, un the unfortunate thing in this situation is that there's been a kind of false equivalency erected. On the one hand, you've got the president uh, abusing both the rule of law and democratic process in yanking someone's press credential. On the other hand, we're talking about journalistic technique, which is important. But in order to keep perspective, we're, the uh, the abuse of power that Trump exhibited here is, is far more consequential. Definitely agree. I'm curious, Bill, how do you think that Acosta maybe could have handled that situation differently? Is there is there a better way that he could have carried himself in that moment? You know, Elaine makes a very good point about the nature of those events. You have uh, a matter of seconds, not minutes, to... to 
to frame a good question. So I, I'm not going to second-guess Acosta. But I, I think generally, to the extent that journalists can frame open-ended questions that are with the, with the pursuit of information and insight as opposed to making a personal declaration, just from a journalistic point of view, you get better results, at least I have over the years, when I'm, when I'm uh, either at a, a press conference or interviewing someone. People don't especially care what I think. What, what they want to know is what the public official thinks, and our job is to figure out a way to extract that. Our phone numbers uh, for this conversation today, 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington. Or toll-free, 1-877-285-9348. You can also reach us, news at indianapublicmedia.org, if you don't want to go on the air, or at Noon Edition. You know, I've been a, a journalist for a long time myself, and I think one of the things that has surprised me and shocked me, and I'd like to get your reaction to it, is when President Trump was a, was campaigning, when he was candidate Trump, um, you know, I wrote, many people wrote, that this guy's never going to make it because he doesn't tell the truth or he's not presidential and and we we sort of miss some things i think but i he turned a lot of my assumptions on their ear i assumed that people wanted the truth i assumed that there were certain things that that really couldn't be argued about you could you could prove things and say well this is this is the truth and this what he just said isn't the truth and that doesn't seem to matter as much as I think it should or always thought it should. So I guess, Elaine, a reaction? Yeah, I mean, this is a great conundrum that we're all sort of scratching our heads about. Um, and, you know, many of my colleagues are, are doing an excellent job of tracking all of the untruths coming out of the White House, including, for example, Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post and others. Um, and they've done a great job on that. Um, I guess I'm similarly baffled in a way as to why people don't seem to care if it's the truth or not. But on the other hand, you know, we, we all know what the concept of propaganda is. And I think we're seeing it unfold on a daily basis. And people are, are predisposed to believe things they agree with. Um, the sort of collapse in trust in media preceded this president. And I think he's ridden that wave very effectively um, and, and contributed to a, a sort of continuing erosion of trust. And at the same time, you know, bolstered support for journalists. I mean, I, I've had several occasions where people have come up to me when they've heard that I teach journalism, they want to shake my hand and say thank you for your service and I can't see that's ever happened before so there's two sides to this. And you have seen that I think some journalism schools are reporting that enrollment is way up. There's sort of this wave of people wanting to get into it and do the investigative reporting. And, mm-hmm. um, I'm curious about that though. I mean one of the arguments that Trump has made and in my in my words here I'm putting words in his mouth but just that the, the media has been much harder on him than past presidents. And I'm, I'm wondering about just sort of, uh, is, is the media, are journalists so far in it and feeling under siege so much that um, maybe they do, they are more quick to assume that what he is doing is wrong or incorrect or... Michael, you want to try that one first? Well, you know, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think President Trump has tried to make that case, but he makes the case... I mean, he's he's kind of portrayed himself as the victim in a lot of different things, not only with the press, but when it comes to trade, dealing with other countries and the United States is the victim. They're not trading us fairly. So he has that narrative. He has pushed that narrative in a lot of his base, you know, for better or for worse, they, they buy into it. Uh, the thing is, you know, the, the, you know, we, I hear a lot of things on social media where. They say, well, you know, the uh, the press, the reporters, they, they, they take him at his word too much. They need to sort of uh, not pay attention to everything he says. But we're in a business where there's really no room for joking around or playing around or or we're, we're in a very serious business. And a lot of times what the president, well, most of the time, all the time, the president, what the president says, it's 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 hard. It, we, we take it as being serious. We don't we can't tell when he's being uh, facetious or playing around or just poking fun. Um, A lot of his tweets are very somewhat mean-spirited. So we're in a position to having to take the president at his word, and oftentimes his word, you know, things that come out of his mouth, his statements are are untrue. Um, So we're, we're put in a situation where we seem like we're overly sensitive to everything he says, but then again, that's our job to be that way. 
We have- I think, yeah, in, in many respects, Trump has done us all a favor in that regard, because gone are the days when we can assume certainly anything he says is true. But I think that extends to other public officials. Journalists have an expression, uh, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Uh, and I think we're we're checking it out uh, to an extent far greater than we used to do before, and I think that's healthy. We have a couple of phone calls, so we're going to go first to Dan. Dan, go ahead. Hello there. How you doing? Good. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I was able to peruse a little bit of the court ruling um, before I left home. I'm in my car, so I can't read it to you. But um, discussion seems to be interpreting this as some type of defense of the First Amendment. And that's not actually what the court ruled upon. Um, The court ruled specifically that the federal government may have a right to um, revoke press credentials, but there has to be a process for it, a due process. And there was no due process involved. It's a matter of the first four Fifth, Eighth, and Fourteenth Amendments, um, and what the court essentially said was, you can go back and set up a process. We're not going to tell you what process to set up, uh, but you have to set one up if you want to revoke credentials. Remarkably, a young man um, in 1986 challenged the city's parking ticket ordinance, Bloomington's parking ticket ordinance, when he was sued by the city. And made the same point. They had no way to challenge parking tickets um, short of going to court. And hmm. Judge Randy Bridges said, uh, get to court where people can try to arbitrate out uh, whether it was a just ticket or, or anything like that. So the courts aren't saying he, the President Trump can't <coughs> press credentials. The courts are saying there needs to be a process for doing that. And that's an important distinction um, because it's not a big First Amendment case. It's, uh, like I said, a Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment. Dan, thank you. We're gonna, I'm going to let Elaine Monahan wants to jump in here, and our other guests might, too. Thanks, thanks for your call. Yeah, th- thanks for introducing some nuance into this. It is, of course, quite complicated, and it's just the first bite at this, and this case will presumably go on for some time. And not having been in the courtroom myself, I certainly don't want to mislead any of our listeners. Um, and I think you're right that it's not straightforward, that there's still a lot of negotiation going on uh, that will have to go on about what this actually means. Um, the reporting I'm seeing suggests that the judge kind of le- leaned in the direction of suggesting that the First Amendment issue was likely to um, supersede the interests of the White House. But you're absolutely right that he um, ordered the White House to return Acosta's pass, but did not rule on the underlying First Amendment question, which I imagine is subject to a great deal more discussion and negotiation. You know, Bob and Sarah, can I mention one thing? And I, I, I do know there's sort of this sort of elephant in the room that no one's kind of addressed in why there's this this ongoing, you know, um, tension between the the president and the press is that there is this huge elephant in that. There's Fox News out there, and not to cast blame, and Fox News did join in with CNN to to um, to press for Jim Acosta to have his credentials back. But at the same time, you have a lot of the president's followers, um, his supporters, who watch Fox News, and they're saying, "Well, wait a minute, it, how is it that Fox News can report a certain way, and all the other media outlets, uh, pro, you know, uh, portray a story in a vastly different way?" and you know, I, I'm not going to say some people are less sophisticated than others, but, you know, there's that segment of society that says, you know, they they maybe don't understand or appreciate or don't acknowledge it, the differences between how one news outlet or that most of the news outlets, you know, actually report on the news, report on the president as compared to, say, Fox News, which is slanted towards the president. We're going to go to our next caller. I think he may want to talk about some similar issues. Ray, go ahead. Hi. Um, thanks for your program, and thanks for taking my call. I want to frame this as a question more than just my opinion. But um, you mentioned Fox News, 
and um, we're on public radio, and I'm I'm kind of interested with public radio's news narrative seems to be frequently on the attack um, all day long on, on this president on the on the Republican. It's not just the president on the Republican program, and um, why is that right? That you have a, a station, a network that takes tax dollars, um, being on the attack. With with Fox News, you could see it's a it's a private enterprise, but you take tax dollars, and you're and you're a very slanted narrative in my mind, mm-hmm. um, all day long, and I mean all the way through to Fresh Air and other programs where they seem to just be on constant attack. And I, I think this is what our president senses is that he's under siege. Bill Mitchell, you want to uh, address that first? I think it's a fair point that most journalists lean left as opposed to right. Uh, That being said, I think what we're seeing on public radio, local and at a national level with NPR, is really not a concerted attack on the current administration, but an attempt to do what we've been talking about, to hold public officials to account when, and I'd be be interested in um, the caller's take on this, when, what, what would you have public radio do when the president makes false assertions as repeatedly as he does? Well, I don't, I don't uh, give him a pass on, on false assertions. I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in this is a president that ran on a platform that he kept his promises. So in that respect, he's so different from other politicians in that he didn't lie to people just to get elected. He, he kind of had a platform of ideas. You knew what you were getting. Yeah, I, I don't like that the guy um, twists and bends the truth and says one one thing. But on the campaign trail, he sure gave his voters what they what they voted for. Any uh, reaction to that? I th- well, he 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 just doesn't twist and bend the <clears throat> truth. He he does he does lie. And, you know, you may say that he didn't lie to get into office. Well, he's lying while he is in office. And it's it's it it behooves the press to continue to press for that. You can't you can't allow that. And he has to, you know, if he's going to make a statement about something, he's you know, and if it comes out that it's inaccurate or it's a falsehood, we have a duty. We have an obligation to say that. I think. I think we're, you know, um, I, I understand where the listener, uh, the caller is, is coming from in that it does appear when you, you listen at least to public radio uh, that it may appear that we are one-sided. I think when you contrast that, when you see on something, say, in uh, talk radio, AM talk radio, that's more conservative or right-wing, uh, right-leaning that they often do not have the other side, but I, I would challenge you to, to to show me where on any program in NPR or public radio where you don't hear the opposing view. You will hear the opposing view. It may not be the entire show the opposing view or one side or slanted, but you do get both sides, and that's what you don't get to say uh, when you usually hear st- stuff on, say, Fox News. Ray, I wanted to... I think I- to go back to, to what you said about the campaign, because I think, um, and I, I see what our, our guests say about this too, I think a lot of times in the campaign, uh, President Trump did make promises, um, and he kept a, a good many of his promises, but a lot of his campaign were, were you know, personal attacks and things like that, that, that maybe the press was almost um, too quick to cover the personality rather than the policy decisions. Yeah, this this guy's a different animal for sure. And I'm in business, and there's a term in business called change agent. And to to have somebody turn around a company, you almost need somebody from the outside to kind of right the ship. And in a lot of respects, our country needs to be righted. We were headed down, in my opinion, we were headed down a path that was kind of corrupt, and and you know, money was paying for politics and. Um, it, it, there were a lot of things wrong, and I, I think this man is an outsider. Uh, no, he's he, he's not your average politician. He's not even a politician, but doggone it, he's getting things done, and um, it, and a lot of it I like. And I, you're 
your supporters nationally aren't just a bunch of yahoos, you know, redneck idiots. There, there are some very thoughtful people that like what's coming out of this. And let's get, I know it, yeah. let's get one reaction from our guests. So I, I think Ray is leading us into a really important discussion for journalists, and that is. What's the best way to do journalism when you're addressing and trying to serve such a fractured audience? I think Ray's point is well taken that uh, the, the Trump uh, base can, should not and cannot be dismissed. There are, there are many thoughtful people who support this president. So I think that gets to journalistic technique in terms of how do you frame a question in a way that doesn't immediately send a message to the audience that you're uh, aggressively opposed to the to the public official. You want to do it in a way that is open-ended and even-handed enough that you engage the audi- all the audiences, not, not just opponents. We're going to have to take a short break. You're uh, listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about journalism and the age of President Trump. A lot of things have changed. If you want to join us after the break, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1877 1-877- 285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, online at smithville.com. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about uh, journalism and the media in the age of President Donald Trump. We have three guests, one in the studio. That's Elaine Monahan, professor of practice in journalism and public relations at the IU Bloomington Media School. Also joining us is Bill Mitchell, a journalist and the former editor of Pointer.org. And Michael Puente, a reporter for WBEZ and Chicago Public Media. He's a board member for the Society of Professional Journalists in Indiana. If you want to join us on the program, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local area. You can also uh, send us questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So Ray, before the break, was talking a little bit about public broadcasting and the spies he thought they had, and then also about Fox News. Um, That all sort of leads me to this idea that Trump has talked about quite a bit, the Trump bump. Um, So I'm wondering, is there, does that even, you know, I've never worked in these cable newsrooms, but I'm wondering, does that figure in, like, they just need to keep feeding this beast every day with Trump coverage to a Trump-loathing audience? uh, I don't know. Bill, would you be able to, to just react to that? You know, I found during the campaign that the repeated um, decision by cable outlets to go live to Trump campaign events, simply because it was so unpredictable from a news point of view. You know, news happens when the, when the plane crashes, not when it lands. And uh, there were so many plane crashes with Trump campaign events in terms of unexpected things happening. It's understandable why news outlets went as much to him as they do, and I think this is a continued phenomenon. But it certainly provides lots of um, free uh, publicity, and as a result, I think, in, in terms of uh, support at the at the ballot box. So it's a, it's a tough issue. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wonder if you've ever seen the cable news networks carry press briefings live like they do now. 
I, I don't remember seeing that as much as we're seeing it now, certainly. Um, and, it, you know, if you just leave the television on um, all day long, as I sometimes do, just out of curiosity, you can hear, the, you know, you'll hear the same things over and over and over again, interrupted periodically by these briefings. And certainly I'm not sure that the audiences are entirely prepared for that because they're not used to seeing them in that sort of unfiltered way. I think that's a good point that you make. Elaine, you're in an interesting situation having worked for a UK-based news outlet with Reuters. How do you see Reuters covering Trump differently, say, than the AP or or US-based outlet? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think about that quite a lot. Um, I mean, I, I think it's for me, it's got less to do with the sort of the national origin of the outlet and more to do with the kind of practice um, uh, that's sponsored in a way. I mean, Reuters is an international um, uh, you know, outfit and I worked for them in Europe for years before I worked for them in America and it's in North America. And I think it's true that some of the sort of traditions are different in those two entities. Um, I mean, what I've seen... Suggests to me that there's a slightly less, I don't want to, heated sounds too judgmental and I don't mean it that way, but there's a sort of a more kind of cool headed way of thinking about how you ask your question, um, how you frame the question when you work for a wire like Reuters or the Associated Mm. Press, which I think has more to do with the sort of editorial values that you, I mean, certainly in the world I came up in, it would not be tolerated if you put yourself in a position of kind of being in the news. You would be sort of shunned in a way. We're going to go to the phones. We have a phone call from BJ. Go ahead. Hello. Yeah, hello. Hello. Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah, I um, to the uh, gentleman who said fact-checking, and I agree with that. You need to fact-check, <laughs> and he said even if your mom loves you. But recently there was a photograph of a bunch of high school kids uh, so- giving the so-called Nazi salute, and it hit the press big time. I was taken in the spring, and the press grabbed it and ran with it, and nobody fact-checked it. And if you look at the photo close, I looked at it close, and I go, well, these kids seem to be waving and stuff, not giving that ramrod nasty salute. And then it turns out, a couple of days ago, the photographer said, I asked him to wave to my... <laughs> he didn't ask him to give it. And nobody picked up on that. They didn't check the students who were there. They didn't check the photographer. It seems like they just wanted to run with a propaganda story. And I wondered, are we headed to that where there's less fact-checking and more jumping on the bandwagon and making a conclusion before all the facts are in? Is that just to get eyeballs? And uh, uh, let's get a couple. On? Yeah, we'll get some reactions here, Elaine. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot going on in your que- in your excellent question. I mean, there's one thing I feel like I should sort of lead with. I'm looking right now at a website called Snopes.com, which I highly recommend, which looks at situations like this and tries to figure out if they're true or not. And it does actually say that this photograph was as presented. Um, at the same time, you know, the caller is right that there is this in- increasing hazard of reporters jumping to conclusions in order to not get behind in the news and, and that's something that we always have to be careful with but I, I do just want to say that according to Snopes anyway which is not to my knowledge been wrong about these things it was in fact as presented Bill you uh, you have a connection the connection with Pointer and Pointer has, has done a lot of fact checking over the years right or they, the, yeah the Pointer company they, they have uh, really started by by uh, Bill Adair at the now Tampa Bay Times. Um, and this is a, a prime example of the sort of thing that, that should be fact-checked. Elaine, I'm also, my, my connection is too slow. I'm trying to get to Snopes. But tell us what, what Snopes, if you still have it up, yes. what Snopes found. Because I think this process of really digging underneath something like this is worth spending a couple of minutes on. Yeah, okay. Well, they said quite a bit, but I'll try to sum it up very quickly. Um, So basically, they say their headline is several male students at Baraboo High School were photographed performing the Nazi Zieg Heil salute. And their rating is true or false. And their rating is it's true. Um, And then they go in to point out that police and school officials, you know, undertook an investigation into the photograph. Um, to find out if it was accurately presented as as it was suggested. Um, and they've taken, um, you know, they've used social media content, like a, a tweet that somebody put out 
um, asking the question about whether it was as it seemed. And then it's um, they've, they've gone on to do some other reporting, uh, quoting other students saying that the school had not investigated um, despite them asking them to. Um, and then another student said the gesture was suggested by the photographer and another um, person in the picture said the same thing. Um, and then as you, there's, they've also gone and spoken with the photography company Wheel Memories to find out what had actually taken place. Um, and they also spoke with, um, they also um, looked over the different uh, coverage um, and noted that the Auschwitz Memorial Museum in Poland had also criticised the photograph. So th th the short answer is that they did an awful lot of reporting in order to check whether this was true or not, which of course is exactly what everyone should do in a situation like that. This is one huge benefit of uh, journalism in, in the internet age. I mean, PolitiFact and I think <clears throat> Elaine mentioned Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post. There, there are many of these outfits now uh, digging into things that, that readers have understandable readers and viewers have understandable questions about this great yeah. example that the caller has raised for us yeah. interestingly you know in in my world i've written about fact checkers and you know columns about certain things and then i'll get that reaction from people who will say well look at who the fact checkers are you know and so this is almost a never ending debate whether people trust what you're telling them or not mm -hmm. so we got a call from Jane. She didn't want to didn't want to go on the phone on the program, but she wanted to point out that Trump has not followed through on his promises, and she thinks that's important to note. I don't know what specifically she was talking about, but um, I wanted to include that in the conversation because that was a point that Ray had had made earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm curious, just all of you, if you can just talk. About, how would you suggest that the media, if they if there was sort of a reset, maybe how would we do that in order to cover Trump better, what would we be doing in an ideal world? Do you want to start, Elaine? Well, I, well oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. Right. Well, I, I would say as, as, a, as a reporter here, you know, we're still waiting for Donald Trump to actually visit Chicago. <laughs> you know, he visited before the, the election, um, and I got to cover him, and there was another time he was supposed to have a rally, but that got kind of shut down because of uh, perhaps some violence that was happening. Well, I think as reporters, as we go forward, we, 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 we do need to understand that we have a role to play, you know, in, in terms of Jim Acosta's dealing with, with the president. He's got to know that, you know, I don't know if this is going to change the way he deals with the president when he asks a question. Maybe he just gets to his question, try, try to stop, you know, try to build it up or get into sort of an argument with the president, but ask his question and then sort of get out of the way. But we, we, we still have to do our job. Um, but we got, we got to pull away from what we're seeing a lot more of, and I mentioned this earlier, is where we're becoming the story, where we're, you know, the president throws out an insult or a jab or whatever he does to a certain reporter or a news outlet. We, we can't get blindsided by that. We can't allow ourselves to continue to be part of the news landscape. We have to cover the news. And we, we, you know, you know, nobody likes to be insulted. Nobody likes to, uh, especially by the president. And it takes a lot of guts. You're, you're in front of the, the most powerful man in the free world asking him a question that he may not like. And you're not sure what his response is going to be. But you got to stand there. you got to deliver that. You can't lose sight of that. Um, but at the same time, we, we got to be careful that we're not becoming the news. That, that's so true. For, you know, for a novice politician, Trump is an amazingly savvy campaigner. And what, what's interesting is that the campaign has, has only stepped up since the election. Uh, if you look at the, the timing of his insults and outrageous statements, they're often right at the time when news is breaking on substantive matters, whether it's his uh, personal company's uh, failure to pay appropriate taxes or uh, serious foreign policy issues uh, in, uh, involving um, weapons in North Korea. If you notice, when some of those things come up, that's when Trump will say something outrageous, and it shifts the narrative. I think to, to, your, to your question, Sarah, about how we might do things differently in a reset, I think we need to be especially careful not to let the president set the agenda uh, all the time. 
Yeah, I, I would just echo that and, and sort of maybe add another thought because obviously we've all been thinking about this a lot because it is a real conundrum, right? So you have to cover the guy, but you don't want to um, be slanted about it um, or appear to be slanted about it. And at the same time, there's sort of wall-to-wall events happening all day long. And I think the agenda-setting um, notion that you mentioned just now is a really important one because the president has perfected the art of setting the agenda by getting up at three o'clock in the morning and tweeting. And I've seen a lot of discussion about whether, you know, sort of portraying the media as being led along by the nose like a bunch of lemmings. And of course, that's not really fair because we do have to cover him. Um, but I, I suppose had we been able to predict this, perhaps there could have been a sort of a sit down with all the editors in charge uh, to sort of agree a strategy on how to respond in this unprecedented situation, which I'm not seeing, frankly, which I think is a shame. It's sort of happening in a reaction we particularly now that we've seen this case with Jim Acosta. Um, and at the same time, we can't f- forget the fact that the people who get to go to the White House briefing are to a certain extent chosen by the White House. So, you know, you don't have a completely sort of unified um, media pack in that room who have the same agenda necessarily. But in, in my dream world, that's what it would look like, where people would agree, well, what are the questions we actually need to ask today? We used to do this on the State Department pra- Travelling Press Corps all the time. You know, we would know that when we got to Berlin or wherever, we'd have one question. And as the Reuters correspondent, it quite often fell to me to ask mm. it, but we would spend half an hour sitting, brainstorming on what are the 20 words that Elaine is going to say. And that's the sort of thing that I really would love to see journalists doing more of. And one other thing I just want to mention, I've seen my colleague up in New York, Jay Rosen, who's fabulous, talking about the idea that we should send the interns to cover the White House briefing. And I haven't talked to him about this, so I'm not saying he's necessarily still saying that, but I actually was thinking about that this morning. I think the opposite is true. I think we need to send the people who have the greatest sort of pedigree and standing um, into the room to ask these questions because they are the people who have the greatest, um, you know, defence in a situation like that. Our phone you know, numbers. Can I chime in? Uh, yeah, yeah, let me, oh, let me sorry, offer. Our, let, yeah, that's okay. Let me offer our phone numbers really quickly in case <laughs> somebody wants that. to call in the last 10 minutes. 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. Go ahead now. Well, I was just going to mention that while, you know, um, that while Jim Acosta is in the news today, we, we have to understand that this is not the first time where the Trump administration has taken away, you know, press passes from journalists back in July. Uh, the White House took retaliatory, retaliatory action against Caitlin Collins, a White House reporter for CNN, after Collins asked President Trump questions at an Oval Office press op. And back in uh, February 20, uh, 2017, the White House ban- barred several news organizations from an off-camera press briefing, handpicking a select group of reporters that included a number of conservative outlets uh, friendly towards President Trump. So while Jim Acosta may be in the news today, and was uh, certainly last week, this is not the only example where the president and this White House has gone after White House journalists. Could, could one of you talk about the relationship between the press and President Obama? Because my recollection is it wasn't all that great. And certainly Obama's performance on a number of press-related issues, perhaps uh, Elaine can speak about this better. I don't, I'm not sure how long ago you were at the, Were you covering the State Department under the Obama administration, away? Uh, no, I was not. I stepped out of journalism for a few years, actually, <laughs> at that point. Uh, but no, I, I mean, I, I wrote about his campaign for Microsoft UK. I, I blogged about his campaign, which was a lot of fun. But I didn't get to cover him in office, no. But I thought that Obama sort of ran on this idea that he was going to be more open. And then when he got into office, things didn't necessarily shake out yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah. That that was sort of my recollection, but I don't have any, you know, any direct knowledge of it. But just things that I read, it was like, well, President Obama is not always um, being very cooperative with the press. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the I facts think, at my fingertips either. But yes, I think that's a fair d- description of it. Sorry, Michael, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think we should mention that President Obama did have a very, very difficult um, re- um, relationship with Fox News, and oftentimes. Uh, wouldn't ask you wouldn't answer their questions or would um, would uh, would you know he had a very caustic relationship with Fox News but other reporters in that room supported Fox News in being there I don't think President 
Obama ever uh, pulled Fox News's credentials, mm-hmm. but he did have a very tense relationship with them. And to to Fox News's credit, they did stand behind CNN and Jim Acosta in, in support of him having mm-hmm. his credentials re- mm-hmm. reinstated. We have a phone call, so let's go to Rick on the phone. Rick, hi, how's it going? A big fan of the show. Um, as an aspiring journalist, I'm finding uh, this conversation very helpful. Um, so my question is. Um, a lot of the times, uh, every morning I wake up and I turn on the radio or the TV, it's always, I feel like we're talking about Trump's Twitter, sort of the crazy things he says. We're kind of always analyzing his character. But I feel like a lot of people really want to know more about the policy. What is he actually doing? Because tweets are just tweets. At least that's how I view it. So I was wondering if maybe should we think about um, more policy coverage, what is actually being put into law as opposed to, you know, always talking about how he reacts sort of in a hot-headed way. Uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. All right. I think this gets to the old question of um, the journalist's choice. Do we do what's interesting or what's important? And ideally, we do both. But unfortunately, what's interesting, uh, as opposed to serious policy issues, uh, as Rick just uh, framed it, uh, doesn't make for as much uh, fodder on cable talk shows. So I think that's another issue we need to deal with. Back to Sarah's original point about reset. How can we shift the focus more to policy issues and not be forever consumed with, with, with these uh, perhaps more interesting but less consequential things? And I have to say, with a president tweeting like this, I don't think we've seen anything like this before, whereas sometimes that does give us a a very good indication of of his policies or what we might be seeing in an executive order, and then we see Congress sort of reacting in a, in a flurry to that. Or he changes his mind a little bit later that day, and it turns out the tweet wasn't necessarily entirely indicative. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, th- I think that um, the caller uh, makes a really good point, and that um, you know, as an o- as members of an audience, which we all are too. Um, sometimes you just have to make a choice and look at the places that are really grappling with the policy questions and at the same time bear in mind that you know newsrooms are facing hideous um, resource pinches and so you know to have people out covering a lot of these of the implications of policy decisions which is what you need to do like you have to have people out in the ground looking at what that actually looks like out in the world and not in on Capitol Hill or in Washington DC and sadly a lot of newsrooms just don't have those kinds of resources and so that's a whole other show <laughs> how you fix that problem but that's certainly part of it I think there, there is a lot of discussion of policy issues um, but policy issues involve not just the president but also Congress and the relationship be- between the two I, I want to ask about the re- most recent campaign because I you know I interviewed a lot of people who were running for office a few people that could have spoken about Donald Trump and and wouldn't just you know, and because they were in Indiana, and you know, so the campaign, the, um, the this is a different kind of president, even in terms of people who are running for office. It seems to me, and I guess I wanted to get your observations on that. Am I, was I just seeing a couple isolated cases, or do you think that was sort of widespread? Do you mean candidates or I mean voters? candidates who, you know, in, in the state of Indiana, there were it was hard to find candidates who were running for Congress or Senate who would just flat out criticize. I mean, you could take Joe Donnelly's right. campaign, for instance, who lined himself up with Trump whenever he could in the state of Indiana. That's just unheard of for a, for a Senate person running for re-election. But maybe not surprising, given the strong support for, for Trump in Indiana. I guess the question I have, Bob, goes back to Rick's question. As editor of a local paper with dwindling resources, as they're dwindling at all news organizations, how are you balancing this tension between covering the important and the interesting? We, you know, we we call people like Elaine Monahan and ask for her <laughs> comments. <laughs> uh, well, you know, like everybody else, I mean, it's a it's a balancing act, and with you know, we're we're a local paper, so. With um, President Trump, I'd say we probably are more trying to just explain the phenomenon to our to our readers as opposed to doing a lot of digging into his um, you know his policies or you know it's it's more like what's what's going on why why is everything seem to be sort of turned upside down with this presidency? 
In our newsroom, after the 2016 election, we hired a rural affairs reporter. And I'm, I, I absolutely understand that Trump voters don't just live in the rural parts of the state, but certainly we don't have as many in Bloomington, a college town. Um, but that was absolutely in response to, we need to get more out into the areas that clearly a lot of folks in Indiana are in line with this president and we're not hearing their voices or their concerns enough. So that's one thing we did, but... Um, I, I think uh, it's important, and I'm sure you guys would agree with this, journalists have to examine themselves and who they're talking to, and that's what Sarah was, was mentioning. And I think that's something that local newspapers in all communities need to do, especially in this day and age, if you're in a community that's very liberal like Bloomington. And I say that be, you know, because everybody on the city council, everybody and uh, the, the mayor for the last 40 years, always you know, Democrats. So it's a, it's a different kind of world we live in. Yeah, and I think Bob, I, I would agree with you on that. I was down in Indianapolis covering the midterm elections for WBEZ and um, you know, going to the uh, the, the 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 celebration um, for the, uh, the for the Senate candidate um, Mike Braun, who won, in talking to people in that room in that celebration, it was hard to hear some of the criticisms against the press, and um, they they do feel that the press is very much against President Trump and his agenda. Um, so sometimes we have we have to sit there and take that and listen to it and, and look inward to see if we're doing anything that is inaccurate or wrong or just not giving his supporters more say more 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 credit or more due so we have a challenge in that but at the same time we also have a challenge in reporting the president accurately and and tough it's it, it's only going to get tougher as we move forward because of to the press, whether we like it or not, you know, we, we've got a sort of a target on our back now. We're going to have to leave it right there with that target on our back. <laughs> Michael Fuente, thank you very much. Mike, Michael's from <laughs> reporter from WBEZ and Chicago Public Media, a board member for the Society of Professional Journalists of Indiana. Bill Mitchell's been with us. He's a journalist, former uh, editor of Pointer.org. And thank you to Elaine Monahan for being with us, Professor of Practice in Journalism and Public Relations at IU Bloomington's Media School. For producer Taylor Haggerty uh, and also producer Azra Ceylon, uh, engineer Mike Pashkash, and co-host Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.